Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea of the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Here with my co-host for Open Heart Conversations, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. On today's episode, we will explore Lutheranism with Pastor John Flack of Our Savior's Atonement in Washington Heights. Thank you for joining us. So uh, I'm going to begin with a, um, a rather personal question, and that is, what inspired you to become a Lutheran minister? I grew up uh, in a family of Lutheran pastors, and, um, and I have a long line of Lutheran pastors behind me. And uh, it just seemed to me, uh, I wouldn't say there was anything in particular that uh, led me to this uh, call, but um, rather just the way I was brought up and the way I grew up uh, among pastors in church. Um, I grew to love the liturgy and um, enjoy the intellectual challenges of sermon writing. And, and that's, I think, kind of how I became a pastor. Nothing really dramatic, no flash and thunder or lightning or anything, just just the slow growing up and growing into it. So if in, in an exploration of the Lutheran tradition, um, it sort of makes sense to begin at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about who Martin Luther was. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's important, first of all, Luther was, as I think most people know, the, the man who, who nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. He was a monk, an Augustinian friar, um, a priest in that order, and also a scholar. Uh, his, um, his title was basically Professor of, of, of Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in, uh, in the university there. Um, but he also comes from a line of reformers um, throughout the Middle Ages who are trying to um, reforms and things they thought were wrong with the church at the time. Um, the difference with Martin Luther was, is that he had the printing press. He knew how to use press, um, use publicity. And he had uh, finally some political backing as well by some people who protected him from, from the church and his own personality um, helped uh, with his sort of um, reformation efforts. So the time was right and he was the right person to make it happen and um, and that's so that kind of unleashed in a sense the uh, the Protestant um, sort of reformation of the Catholic Church, which is really a movement in Western Christianity and, and not really in Eastern Christianity. So, so tell us what were the ninety five theses? Well, there's the, a thesis. Uh, a thesis is just a, a, a statement, um, and he wrote ninety five of these together to 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 kind of try to point out. Um, some inconsistencies in church practice and church thought that he noticed and to provide some suggestions about how to, how to reform them. They weren't, uh, I don't think, uh, in our day considered to be particularly radical probably, but, um, it, it started him off on a path that, um, that he, he didn't ever leave. 
Now, you mentioned the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, the Lutheran tradition sits within this, this historical context. Tell us a little bit about what really were, what was the, the Protestant Reformation? Well, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've been to seminary, so I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I encourage everybody to, there's a great book by Dearman McCullough uh, that they can, called The Reformation, they can, they can read if they want to explore it more. But um, there's a couple of things that were happening uh, that, that, let, that the Protestant Reformation, um, uh, I think, kindled it. Uh, there had been movements way before um, Martin Luther of trying to get, for instance, scriptures into the hands of ordinary people to read in their own language. Um, in fact, the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, uh, translated by Jerome, was, in, was one such method of getting the Bible into normal people's hands back when, you know, the, the lingua franca was, was Latin. Uh, but over time, that kind of calcified, and and uh, and and uh, over time, only scholars or, or monks or um, educated people could read or understand Latin, um, and so they would end up going to church and have no idea really what was going on. Um, like, for instance, the words "hocus pocus" uh, is sort of a corruption of the words "hoc es corpus," which is like this is the body of Christ. So, and um, and all that stuff. So, um, so people would go and they they would they, there's wonder and awe, of course, but um, and perhaps even accelerated by an inability to understand what they were seeing, but also you it ended up with priests who didn't know what they were doing because they would just read phonetically or, or mumble along and, and not really know. And, and then there's a whole lot of money that was being moved around. So, um, you know, the Pope was raising armies and building cathedrals and, and to do that, they had to fund it. So they started selling indulgences and all these other, other things that they, that they, that they did. And, um, and so the Protestant Reformation was trying a way to, um, end what we thought were, uh, or what the people at the time thought were practices that weren't really Christian. And uh, chief among those was trying to get scriptures and worship in the language of the people themselves. Um, that was one. A second was to um, allow communities themselves to sort of uh, be the, uh, the chief arbiters of, of who their priests were going to be, uh, to allow marriage of priests, um, and there were, and also to think about sort of the sacramental structure of the church. And so all those things were kind of the main, in some ways, main thrusts of the Protestant Reformation. And theologically, um, there was also the, the idea that um, we're not trying to earn our way to heaven by doing good works, that, that, that we cannot please God. Uh, and God isn't like a Santa Claus in the sky, sort of with a list marking off the things we did good, the things we didn't do well. And then if we just tip the balance. If we were 51% good, we get to go to heaven. If we're 51% bad, we have to go to hell forever. And that was kind of sort of what they were trying to, to work on. Some, some scholars uh, say that one of the great gifts of Western, uh, the Western tradition is kind of the discovery of the individual human person, the value of the individual human person. Would you say that to some extent the Protestant Reformation represents an aspect of that, that part of what was happening there was sort of the discovery of the individual human consciousness and the, 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 the value of uh, and, and really centrality of the individual human person within the context of faith and religion. Would you say that's true? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would say that that's definitely something to consider. I, I, I tend to worry about the discovery. I think we're all, we were always individuals and we all kind of knew that. Um, I, but the, I do, I have read sort of along those lines that there is, uh, and that the Reformation kind of then led to um, the, the, the initial um, uh, 
at least for Western Europe, the initial sort of theorizing of, of republics, which were about the individual and individual rights and so on. And I think there's probably a line there that you can draw. Um, I, I'm, I definitely think that. And I also think there's something about um, the encouraging to read for your, the scripture for yourself. Now, at least in the Lutheran tradition, it never meant that you, your, your own person, you individual, John Flack or Jose Roman, uh, were the final arbiter of what scripture meant or not. That's not what that meant. But it did mean that conscience was really important. Um, but the, the, the thing about that is that when Luther stood up at the, the Diet of Worms uh, and they were asking him to retract what he was saying, he said something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, my conscience will not allow me to this. Here I stand. I can do no other. And so that idea of uh, a conscience, that idea of, of uh, in some sense, the individual was, was always there. Um, uh, it just perhaps freeing, freeing the, 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 the church and the, and the, and the individual from um, um, a particular governing body in Rome. And that may have helped uh, that kind of thing. I'm honestly not that qualified to speak about that, that kind of idea. Um, so uh, I'll leave it there. But I, I do think there's certainly a, a case to be made. I think you've provided us with some, at least some, some good grounding uh, in the history of the church. Um, so let's begin to explore uh, more deeply the central tenets of the Lutheran tradition. And, and I guess we have to begin with the centrality of Jesus Christ to that tradition. Can you speak to us about that? Yeah. Jesus Christ is um, the word, the lamb, the Savior, the Lord, the brother, you know, the, the servant. Um, uh, we come to Jesus when we come to the Christian faith. Uh, or perhaps a better way of saying it is Jesus comes to us first in the Christian faith. And that's really what the, the Lutherans would, would try to say. They would say that God is fully revealed um, uh, in Jesus Christ for us. And so that's, you know, when you want to go to the middle, you go to the, you go to the center, you go to the center. There's, there's Jesus right there. Um, you know, we just passed Christmas uh, as we were taping this and, and the Epiphany. And um, that, that's a very important day for us because um, it shows us a couple things about, about God. First, that God is very surprising um, because God comes to us in a little baby with diapers that you have to change. And um, you have to feed the little baby, all that stuff, you know. Um, and that's, I think, for Lutherans, an important place to start that this is not, uh, you know, uh, Jesus isn't coming to us uh, in armor or with the flashing lights or, um, you know, everybody's going to point to him and say, yep, that guy's definitely God. You know, instead he comes as an itsy bitsy little baby who grows into a person and then dies the death of um, basically uh, what they would give to domestic insurrectionists or terrorists or something. It's a political death where his body was put on display uh, before the people to terrify them into submission. Uh, and so, um, when people first started proclaiming Jesus, no one could, a lot of people had a really hard time believing that that, that God would let that happen. Um, but, um, but for Christians, and I think for Lutherans, we, we say, no, that's, that is how God chose to be revealed for us. And we can learn about that. And we can learn about how uh, the loneliness of Jesus, the, 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 the poverty of Jesus, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, all that is what shows us God, not, not the, um, not the big glorious, you know, he didn't roll up in a Bentley and uh, with an entourage. Exactly. It was very different. So, so yes. So that's where we start. We start right there with the descent of Jesus to us and his humanity. You know, it's sort of funny. Uh, as you're saying this, I'm reminded of a story when, 
when I was in seminary, uh, one of our professors said that the incarnation stood for for the fact that when God chose to be something other than God, God chose to be a human person, which was rather a, a magnificent statement. And this this woman in the classroom said, and yes, and God chose to be not only a human being, but a nobody, an irrelevance. In fact, uh, a part of the of the hated and uh, and powerless crowd, which I thought was so, you know, it, it literally was a moment of absolute silence in the classroom. Mm-hmm. It, it, in a sense, both of those statements were absolutely true. And you reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That 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 this um, understanding of Christ is God reveals God's self as as literally the lowliest of the low. Yeah, that's a that's a really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. Tell us a little bit about what the Lutheran tradition means when it says um, the phrase it uses the phrase God's grace alone, yeah. sola gratia. What does that mean? So the the idea of uh, well, ever since Augustine, the uh, the great theologian of the uh, fourth fifth centuries. Um, the Western tradition of Christianity um, has always struggled with the idea of how how can a person who is not good be go be together with God forever, and and um, we've been struggling with that question for a long time. And but Augustine had had sort of the idea that nobody is good enough to get into the pearly gates. Instead, um, it's by God's grace, God's uh, God's gift. It's a gift. Uh, so, so when we say God's grace alone, what we're doing is we're recognizing our, our, our human frailty, our human sinfulness, our human um, inability to be God, basically. Um, you know, the, my, I had a professor in seminary who said, you know, you, she said, now how many of you in this classroom think you're pretty decent people? And, uh, you know, we all raised our hands. She said, yeah, you're all trying pretty hard, right? And we all said, yeah. She's like, you're all pretty good, decent human beings. She says, the thing is, you got to be holy to see God. None of you are holy. You know, that was sort of her, like, little introduction to the way that people thought in, uh, in Luther's time. Now, we're, we're, we, don't, we don't think of ourselves often as sinners or, or as flawed, although I think it's kind of healthy to think of ourselves that way. But, um, but the point she was trying to make is that for the Reformers, for, for Luther, for, for everyone within this Augustine tradition, try as you might, and you can try very, very hard, your um, attempts will always fall short of the glory and holiness of God. And so you cannot, uh, we have, a, we have a, a phrase that we use in worship sometimes in our church that says, I confess that I'm in bondage to sin and I cannot free myself. In other words, you need someone to unlock those chains and let you, let you free. And so that's what we mean by grace is that somebody else comes and, and strikes away the chains for us. Um, and, and, then, and, and that's where we start. I guess the corollary to that extremely important phrase in the Lutheran tradition, God's uh, grace alone, is the other phrase, which is salvation by faith alone. Explain what that means. The, it's, 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 it's like a handshake. If someone offers you their hand of grace, uh, your, your hand of faith it receives it. And, um, you know, it, it, in, the, in the Protestant tradition, I think that, I think that we can say for, well, at least for Lutherans, I'll just say at least for Lutherans, even faith itself is a gift. Um, even faith, even the ability to trust God is a gift. Um, and, that, and there's really nothing that we can do to, to, to 
awake faith or excite faith or make faith work. Even, even the faith itself is a gift. But yet, that's the gift that allows us to accept the present that's being offered to us. So the grace, if you think about it as, as a present at Christmas even, you know, there's something under the tree that's got your name on it and your parent gives it to you. Um, if you just say, that's really not for me, um, I can't take that, I'm not going to receive that gift, I don't want it. You'll never know what's un- under that wrapper or, or what's there. So, but if, if you're, you're able to, to take it and unwrap it um, and, and understand that, that this is actually for you, then you get to see whatever is underneath that wrapper. And sometimes maybe you can think about your parent being the person who's not only giving you the gift, but also has brought you up to understand that when Christmas time comes, we're going to give presents. You're going to take one and unwrap it. And it's going to be really great and exciting. Um, and so in a sense, even, even that acceptance of the gift is also a gift. So, so is it appropriate to say that in the Lutheran tradition, human wholeness is, is a function of a relationship between the divine and the human person? I, I think it's appropriate to say that human wholeness is uh, a gift from God. Um, and, and that, and that um, you know, it's, there's an interesting Orthodox theologian uh, named John Beer who talks about that the first human being was actually Jesus on the cross. Because there's this phrase in, in the Bible that says, you know, behold, behold the man. Um, and he, he says, that, you know, in Genesis, that it doesn't actually ever say that the creation of the man was completed until we get to that point where he says, look, there's, there's the man there. Uh, who's given himself entirely into God's hands. Uh, You know, he's completely helpless. He's on the cross and and just in faith is dying, uh, hoping that God's God's purpose will be revealed. And so I think that, you know, the wholeness of the human person is really the, the, you know, I think you're right that that there is, there is a relationship there that, that we're, we're people in relationship to others. We're also people in relationship to God by God's grace. We, we keep using the word God. Central to the Lutheran understanding of God is the understanding of this of the Trinity. Can you speak to us of what, what is the Trinity? Yeah, the Trinity is what I think that all Christian denominations throughout the earth affirm. Uh, it's the basic doctrine of, of who God is, which is God in one God, not multiple gods, in three persons. Uh, God the Father, technically usually said, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, um, none of which are, um, in some sense, three gods. It's just one God, but neither do you confuse the, uh, the persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, another way of thinking about it is uh, if you think about the speaker, the word, and the voice. Um, and there are other ways of thinking about it as well. But the idea is they all say, share the same essence. They all share the same godhood but yet they're unique in their personhood. Um, it's, it's, it's always, it's something that kind of, at the very foundation, it's a mystery, but it is something that kind of sits in your mind once you kind of let it allow it to sit. Um, it's for theologians who are up on this stuff. It's really easy for them to explain it. Sometimes for people like me who have to deal with like boilers and, you know, robes and all that stuff. It was, so we can sometimes forget kind of how, how, how to explain it. There's a Sunday that always comes called Trinity Sunday. I always do a week of work to kind of remind myself how the doctrine works, how to explain it properly, but that isn't until the summer. So, uh, so, uh, um, but the, the Trinity is, is, you know, the Orthodox church affirms it, the Catholic church affirms it, every Protestant denomination affirms it. It's all, it's one of these things that unites us. And, the, the doctrine itself, I, I, I want to go in a little bit of a, a soapbox, if you don't mind, Jose. Um, uh, the doctrine itself was, was basically codified in the, in the Council of Nicaea. 
And um, a lot of people will say, well, that's, this is when like a bunch of bishops got together and told everybody else what to believe. But that's kind of opposite of what happened. What, what ended up happening back then, every community was free to, they had their own bishops. There was no Pope, you know, every, they had bishops and they were all important. Um, and they're all kind of fighting about what they believed about. And so what the Council of Nicaea did was kind of lay down some a groundwork to say, we can all agree at least on these points. So, so you can do a lot of different things, but at least on these few things, it's really only like three or four sentences, we agree on basic interpretation of the life and death of Jesus Christ and what it means, the Holy Scriptures and what they're trying to say, and our church life together. And, you know, you can go off and do all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, but at least on these few things, we agree. And that's, for me, the importance of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is that this shows us a diversity in personhood. So we have a diverse church. We, you know, you look at the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, they got everything from right wing crazy nut jobs to left wing nut jobs, all in the Catholic Church. It's a beautiful. It's beautiful. I love that. And, and, and the church itself, we, we, you know, we're all over the world. There's there's, uh, there's worship in Urdu, there's worship in Chinese, there's worship in English, there's worship in Spanish, there's worship in indigenous languages all across the world in all different enculturations. And yet there is something, despite that beautiful flourishing, these points of agreement where we're all united and say we believe in the Godhead that we think was revealed in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection and the teaching of the apostles and prophets. And it's just this this little much, but it's enough to bring us all together. Would it be appropriate to say that to some extent that what the Trinity says is that God is itself a relationship? Yeah, some theologians say that. Yes, some theologians say that. Some, some call it a dance. Um, uh, that, um, uh, you know, Augustine, to go back to him, he said that it's, it's, a, it's a relationship of love. It's love at work. Um, and and I, you know, I, I that might be above my pay grade to, to kind of say that right now, but I I think that there's definitely something. I mean, the love. I mean, in the in the Christian tradition, on 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 Christmas morning, we read the, the the prologue to the Gospel of John, and it talks about the love a father has for his his only son, and 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 what is that but a relationship in some sense? Obviously, the the sacred scriptures of, of the Lutheran faith are the is the uh, Christian Bible. Tell us a little bit about the Lutheran tradition relationship to the Christian Bible. Sure. It's a very, well, I wouldn't say it's very interesting, but it, it's kind of interesting. Um, when, when Luther was working, uh, well, the Bible itself, let's take a step back. The Bible itself, the, 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 what you will find in the, the covers of, of a Bible might vary. I don't know if uh, a lot of your listeners know this, but if you were to open the Catholic Bible or the Orthodox Bible or a Bible given to you by your Baptist uh, preacher, you will, if you check the table of contents, you'll notice that they're not quite the same. Uh, some have something called the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha is Greek. Uh, maybe your listeners do know this. They've been listening to other shows, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the, the Old Testament, but not in Hebrew, but in Greek. And, and Luther said, mm, these are great. These are useful, uh, but I'm not so sure that they're really part of the Bible. I'm going to keep them in there, but, you know... And then he went to the New Testament, and he started talking about letters he liked and letters he didn't like. The letter of James, for instance, a very, a very famous uh, introduction. He said, this is, a very, this, is, this is an epistle full of straw. I'm not so sure this surely should be in the Bible, uh, because uh, James has this line where he talks about faith without works is dead. You know, and we just talked about all this stuff about grace, not earning your 
soul to heaven and all that stuff. And so Luther kind of, mm, he wasn't quite so sure about that. Um, nevertheless, nevertheless, he kept it in um, and we keep it in. And I think that it's a helpful critique to remind ourselves that Martin Luther was not Jesus um, and that we need to read the whole of scripture um, together and to be confronted and challenged by its contents as well as comforted by them. Um, but for us, I think the the other, the really important thing to, to mention about the Bible is that Luther called it the cradle of Christ. Because when you open a Bible, here's my Bible, if you open it, you know, and it kind of makes like a little thing, you can put a baby, you know, in there. It's a cradle. Um, the point is that this isn't Jesus, right? Jesus is the word of God. And the Bible is the word because it points to Jesus. The Bible doesn't save us. The Bible itself is not a magic book. It's, it's a book that points to Jesus. Um, and it's sacred and it's holy because it's inspired by God. Um, but it's not, um, it's not a magic tool. And it's not, um, it, it, it's a book of books. And, and they all together point to something even greater than the sum of them, the parts, which is God. Um, and then through what we learn about God, and that's why it's holy, um, because it points, and that's why Luther was comfortable criticizing different parts of it. And to this day, um, you know, Lutherans will will think about what Scripture says, and will try to interpret what we call hard parts of Scripture through the easier parts. I mean, the parts that you understand, you try to use to interpret the parts you don't. Um, but we will also say, you know, we can we can look at this text critically and understand its historical context and try to try to think about how that can help us understand what God is, how God is speaking to us today. Reverend John, are there other texts that are considered sacred scripture by the Lutheran tradition? No, no. The, the, the Bible is the, the only sacred scripture, and, and that's one of our rules of faith. Um, so for us, the, the order would be about the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, the, the, the life and death and resurrection, and the, the apostles' witness to that. Then uh, under that is the scriptures. And part of the reason why we recognize Christ is because Christ fulfills the scriptures. Um, and that, when we say that, we don't mean the New Testament, we mean the Old Testament. Um, and, then, and then after the scriptures are the creeds. So the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And then after that, the tradition of the church. Um, and so there are, there are writings that we hold very, very dear. Like the, the small catechism of Martin Luther is one of those that we hold very, very dear. But it's not scripture. We're not going to read it in church and, and, and say that this is the, the word of God. Um, we, we, I, for instance, find a lot of nourishment in the writings of the early church fathers. I really love reading about Polycarp and uh, um, I like uh, you know, the Gregories, the three great Gregories and, and other things like that. But, but none of those things, they're all interpretations of scripture in the, in the presence of the church. None of them are on the level of the Bible. I'm Bishop Heather Shea, and we will return in a minute with Pastor John Flack. Thank you for listening. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to our conversation on Lutheranism. Does the Lutheran tradition have uh, sacraments? And if it does, yes, yes, yes. 
Yep, we, we, we acknowledge two sacraments. Um, Luther himself was like a little, he didn't know what to do with confession at first. He thought confession was extremely important. So he said, it's really important to confess your sins, not to earn, you know, a spot in heaven by being a super confessor, but to remember and to hear the words of comfort uh, from the priest, uh, to, hear, to hear God's word of forgiveness and God's encouragement. Uh, for him, that's what confession was all about. It's for the weary heart that you can go to confession and, and have a conversation with someone and, and unburden yourself of your sin um, and hear some good advice about maybe what to do. Um, but he ended up folding that into baptism. So our sacraments are baptism and um, the Eucharist or communion. Um, and the reason why he folded that into baptism is because uh, the baptism is a mark, uh, a sign of God's grace that um, brings us uh, um, irrevocably into the family of God. Uh, into God's household, and and the, and it's like a birth, a new birth, and the communion is the, is the food that you get as a as a as a person of God. So, um, so what exactly are sacraments? In the Lutheran tradition, sacraments are um, physical signs of God's grace, uh, objective signs. Um, so, if you're baptized, it's kind of like a fact in your life. It, it never didn't happen. Um, it's it's Someone poured water over you and made the sign of the cross on you and, and named you as a child of God. Um, and the, 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 the important part about sacraments is their physicality, that they're tactile, that they're objective. It's not a feeling. It's, it's, you can feel something when it happens to you, but the actual sacrament itself is something that comes from outside of you and that you receive. So, for instance, communion. Someone comes to you and says, this is the body of Christ, and they put some bread in your hand, and you smell the bread, you taste the bread, you digest the bread, and it, the same thing with the wine. And someone comes to you and gives this word to you, and we also say that the word of God is present in these things. So there's a promise that comes along with those, that God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace are all present at that moment, and you receive them with faith and thanksgiving. Um, and so for us, sacraments are really um, central to our faith. Um, because this is the way, this is one way that God promises to be clear and available to us. Um, so we can say, I, I touched God today by taking communion. I, I, I had my sins forgiven uh, and I know that they're forgiven because I, I, I went to communion. I've been strengthened by the Holy Spirit today because I, I went to communion or I remembered that I was baptized or I confessed my sins to, to my, to my pastor or my neighbor, um, and heard that God does forgive me indeed. Um, and so, so sacraments for us are extremely important. Um, if anybody wants to read about them more, you can read a great uh, essay by, uh, by Luther called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, uh, in which he sort of goes to the different sacraments and explains what they mean and, and what they do and what they are. What are some major spiritual practices that are, um, that are, that are central to the Lutheran tradition or valuable, if you will, within the Lutheran yeah. tradition? Yeah, the, the, the first thing to mention is that Spiritual practices or, or for Lutherans, it's what's helpful for you. The, the first thing that everybody needs to do, though, is go to church. Everybody needs to go to church. That's where the sacraments are. That's where the word is definitely preached. That's where you will always, even if the sermon sucks, which, you know, frankly happens. Uh, I can say that as a professional. Sometimes the sermons just aren't good. You have a bad day or maybe the preacher just it's not their gift. Um, you will at least hear scripture read aloud. And you will be there with other people who are your brothers and sisters in the faith, and you will have the opportunity to receive the sacrament. And so that's number one. You got to go to church. Um, 
and number two is you got to pray. You just got to pray. You pray. And there's no right or wrong way to pray. Um, so, so, so what is prayer? Uh, I always tell everybody, it's just, it's just you just talk to God. You just talk to God and listen. Uh, and sometimes you won't hear anything for a long, long time. Uh, but you just open your mind and just talk. Uh, whatever comes out, God, I'm mad at you today. Or God, help me understand. Or God, I got to tell you I did this bad thing. Or God, I'm really proud of myself today. Thank you for helping me out, you know. Um, we, there's a little acronym I give my, uh, my confirmation or middle school students. It's the ACTS, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, meaning asking God for stuff. And that's, that's as good as we got. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, everybody in our, in our tradition should know and pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, we should know and contemplate the Apostles' Creed. Um, but there are a lot of, uh, but like if you are not helped, for instance, by doing like a, a daily devotion in a book, don't do it. You know, if you're better off taking a walk and talking to God while you're walking, that's good. You know, our, our tradition is, 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 you know, what's, what's helpful for you that brings you closer to Jesus. And, and, you know, the, the thing that I don't like to see is when someone starts telling me, I don't need to come to church because I, I get to be with God on my own. And I have to say that that to me is a sign. That I think that something is a little bit out of, out of kilter. I, I, I think that God wants us to be in as a, at a family table, which is communion, uh, you know, on Thanksgiving, you got to find the relatives that you haven't seen all year and may never see until next Thanksgiving, but you at least need to say hi and hug them and, and ask about their lives and understand you know, and that's kind of like coming to church. There's always going to be that crazy lady in the back who's going to sneeze really loud or or who's going to try to, like, give you an uncomfortable conversation at coffee hour afterwards. But that's part of the spiritual life of the church is all of God's children belong at this table. And who are who are we to to disinvite ourselves uh, from that from that spot? So but beyond that, it's like, you know, if, if reading theology helps you do that, if if having a prayer book at home and doing a prayers at a certain hour of every day helps you do that. Um, if, if just reading the Bible through every year is your way of doing it, that's great too. You know, whatever helps um, is, you know, for us, I would say we're not really big on um, a way to evaluate our spiritual practices would be to say, is this helping me look at my fellow human beings as children of God? Is this helping me re-enter the community of Christ? Is this helping me trust God? Those are ways that we can evaluate our our so-called our, our spiritual practices to see if they're if they're helpful or not. But there's no real there's no real like list of things you should or shouldn't do. There's, it's just really that that besides going to church and being part of the community, that's that's really the only thing I can say. It, when I was a, a child, um, one of the most wonderful things about being in community, in spiritual community, was the idea of holidays. You know, days that we came together as community to celebrate something that was central to our faith. What are some Lutheran holidays? Well, the, 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 you, I wouldn't say it's unique, but um, for Protestants, I'll say this for Protestants, is the Reformation Day when we celebrate the Reformation and, and, and the way that we get to worship now in our own language and read scriptures and, and have, you know, all those things that the Reformation achieved. Um, and that's um, the, the 95 theses were actually nailed up on the board on, on all Hallows Eve. Um, so it's a, you know, Halloween, I always think of as, as Reformation day and, and, uh, as well. Um, but then they have the major Christian holidays, which are Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, 
all those things. And I try to make a big deal of in non COVID times, we'd always have a big barbecue at Pentecost or a potluck at Easter. And I think you're right. Dude. That's part of the, the beauty of it is being together and, and having the kids run around and, and have the adults relax and talk and all that stuff. And hopefully maybe next year we can, we can do that again, but we'll see. Um, and um, the one thing I think that we'll, you'll see in, in our tradition that you wouldn't see, or that you will see in the Catholic tradition, but not in ours is um, a lot of the Mary festive feasts. Um, we don't have, for instance, the Assumption. We don't have the Dormition and we don't have the Immaculate Conception. Um, so that, that's a little different, but um, um, most of the stuff you'll see would be very similar. <clears throat> um, in many of the um, spiritual and certainly religious traditions that we've explored in open heart conversations, we, we've come to the understanding that all of these traditions are incredibly complex and rich, that uh, in many ways, almost every tradition has unique expressions of the tradition. Are there different expressions of the Lutheran tradition? There are definitely, yeah, there are definitely different lines. Um, for instance, my background is um, in what's called the American Lutheran Church before it emerged to become the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America with other uh, Lutheran strains. And the American Lutheran Church was what we call a low church tradition, which means that we weren't, you would, you would find a more simplified service, uh, perhaps fewer um, Eucharistic services um, that concentrate on simplicity and, 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 and humility in its, in its practices and so on. Our, my grandfather, for instance, was a pastor. And he, he, he never wore this outfit. He never wore a collar. He said, and when I got there, he said, I hope you don't become one of those pastors that always wears a collar all the time. You know, uh, he always wore a tie and, uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a blazer and uh, polyester pants. Um, but, um, that's, that's, that was, that was the way it was done with him in the American Lutheran church at that time. Um, and there was, that was also part of not growth of a, of a more, we call pietistic tradition, um, which, um, you know, the, the American Lutheran church was not exactly that, but it was maybe kind of more closely related to that where the pietistic tradition was, was very, very focused on prayer and preaching, um, to the extent that at some points they would, preclude communion until once or twice a year. I didn't know people that grew up just having communion on Monday, Thursday. That was it. They waited all year. Uh, I think that was probably an unwise decision, but that's the way they did it. Um, and that was still Lutheran. On the other hand, you had what we call higher church Lutherans. Um, uh, one example would be, you know, um, during the pietistic and high church split, uh, the Leipzig church in Germany uh, continued to have daily uh, mass and they would have, um, communion every Sunday and everything. And that was kind of continued in, in the United States as well, that there was always a split between the pietists and the high church Lutherans. And even to this day, you'll, you'll go to, for instance, an ELCA um, convention where we, or assembly where we have our, everybody gets together and you'll have, you know, people complain that the church's services are too fancy and people will complain that they're not fancy enough and they'll fight about it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I'll do it again next year. Uh, so, um, but it goes back to that idea of the spiritual practices where none of, neither of those traditions are bad in a sense. Um, you know, I know that I have my preferences, um, but the, definitely the high church can get too full of itself and think that we're practicing it absolutely properly and we're checking all the boxes and God loves us for that. And the other side can say, you know, we're, we're praying so hard and we don't need all that falderall and floofiness over there. And God loves us because we're simple. And, when the reality is, is that God loves a believing heart and, and just doing things because, um, because you're doing it, um, 
to draw closer to God. That's what God wants. And you can do it both ways. Um, what is meant when folks say that the Lutheran tradition is world affirming? That means that we do not believe the best way to, I, I've heard this uh, talked about is we have what we call a theology of descent. God comes down. You know, the, the Bible opens with God creating the world and saying it's good. And who are we to say it's not? If God says this is good, why, why would we say no? We do not say that the world is perfect or that it's not, you know, but we are here in the world. You and I are human beings. We're growing older by the second. Eventually we will die. Um, but we live on this planet uh, together with lots of other people, plants, animals, and other things. And all of this is beloved and cherished by God. And Christ came not just for human beings, but for all of this, this whole world. Um, this whole universe, as a matter of fact. Um, but so we affirm the world as God's good creation. And I think that's really important uh, because I think a lot of times when we think about spirituality, we think of something that's apart from the world or withdrawn from the world. And our tradition is always trying to get us back into the world. Um, so. So is it that the world itself is spiritual? No, that it's good. I would say that it was good. You know, it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's God's creation. And, um, you know, all living things are, and non-living things were created and, 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 and blessed by God. And it's our job as humans to, to accept that and to be in relationship with the world. Um, you know, it, I think for most of human history, we've sort of struggled in a sense with the world. We've, we've, you know, fire, flood, epi- pandemic, epidemic, we've had all these horrible things. And for a brief moment in time, it looked like we were, kind of free of that in a sense. Um, but when we were doing that, we were also polluting the atmosphere and, and bringing on climate change. And, and, and now we're looking at this and saying, you know, our, our lifestyle is going to kill us, not just us, but millions of species that are, that, that share this home with us. And that's contrary to the will of God because God didn't create this world for us to destroy it. Um, God created this world for us to tend and care for and, and be part of. Um, you know, we created a garden. First thing to do is create a garden. And our job was to, to work the garden and to be creatures in the garden along with the other creatures. And, and that's why we, we affirm the world. I mean, the world is good on its own, just like a tree is good on its own. Um, you know, I'm not qualified to say whether the tree has a spirit or not. Um, you know, some indigenous um, um, traditions may say that. There is, there's definitely proof that trees talk to one another and communicate with them in a, in a new way that we didn't understand before. And so we, we can probably assume the creation itself in a, in a sense speaks. And so this is all life, um, whatever, however you call it is life. And that needs to be honored because all life comes from God. So what is the Lutheran tradition's view of the afterlife? I think that we have, well, there's the doctrinal view, but also the, maybe the vernacular view. And I don't like the vernacular. I'll say I don't like the vernacular view. The vernacular view to me is like a cruise ship theory. I call it the cruise ship theory where everything's just like it is here, but nicer, you know? And, you know, you got a great buffet, you get lobster whenever you want, you know, only the people you like are on the ship and it's just great, you know? And that's, not, I think, I think the only thing that we can say about what comes after is that it's better than we can ever imagine. There's this, there's, there's this part in the gospels where, um, you know, the, 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 the people come to him and uh, to Jesus and they say, hey, there's this woman over here 
always it's like, let's blame the woman. But she's had seven husbands. So at the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? In other words, who gets to own her when um, the resurrection happens? And Jesus says, you, you, you don't get it. That's, that's not going to be a thing. In, in, in when, we, when we're with God. So everything, we, so the, the real doctrine though is that we die. Uh, we die and we go to the, go to the grave. Um, and there our bodies will decay over time. Um, and, um, you know, the ancient church would say we go to sleep. You know, when you go to sleep, you then, but then there'll be a waking up. And that's what the resurrection of the dead, um, when we all uh, receive a body, our bodies, uh, because our bodies are blessed and good, um, but imperishable. So we'll, we'll be raised like Jesus was raised and we'll live, um, in a new, in the newly created order that, um, that will have no end. Um, and that's as much as I think as we can say is that there's a, there's a promise of resurrection. There's a promise of life with God that we will be able to see God face to face. Um, but what that looks like and what that entails, uh, as they say, no tongue can tell. It's it's interesting. You said something which I think is really rather beautiful. You said our bodies are blessed and good. Uh, yeah. Speak a little bit to that. Well, God didn't create us to to not have a body. You know, our, we have a uniqueness. Our our bodies are are good. Christ came as a little baby. We go back to that, and and had, he he had to die in his body. Um, and so God didn't create us to ha- to to not have bodies. So our bodies are blessed along with our minds and every other part of us that, that God, you know, God wants us to, 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 to embrace our embodiment, our flesh, uh, to know that, that um, we're not just souls trapped in a journey. Like we're, we're, this, this is what we were created to be. God created us to be the human animal. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and the diversity of the human creature, like there's so many different kinds of human beings. We all look different. Um, and that's also intended by God. And so um, it, another reformer, John Calvin, um, said that, um, you know, the job, our job is to recognize the face of God in the people that we meet every day. And, and sometimes those faces aren't our favorite faces. Uh, sometimes those faces are ugly. Uh, sometimes those faces are very, very beautiful, but nevertheless, uh, wherever that is, um, every single person we encounter bears that image, that mark of, of, of God. And, and we're to, to try to find our way to that somehow. We, you spoke a little bit about the, the centrality of community to the uh, Lutheran tradition, go to church, participate in church, participate within a spiritual community. Tell me if I walked into a Lutheran um, um, church and participated in a Lutheran uh, service, what would it look and feel like? Well, there's the hope and sometimes the reality, right? So sometimes uh, our churches can get a little insular and you might feel like, well, they might be like, why is a stranger coming into our, our church? Unfortunately, that, that happens more often than I think any of us would like to admit. But if, it's a, if we worked on it and we, we got our practice up better, Hopefully you would be welcomed at the door and, 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 and someone would, would help you find a seat. Um, you'd sit next to hopefully somebody who could help you find your way through the service. We, in, my, in my parish, I try to start us off with confession every single Sunday. So we get a moment of quiet um, where we, we confess our sins to God and, and hear the words of forgiveness. And then we start with nice hymn. And in our tradition, um, we try to sing a lot. So we, we sing hymns. We, we do. Uh, but uh, the, the other thing about our tradition is that it's, I'm not an MC. 
when I'm, when I'm there, I'm, I'm leading worship, but the worship is also the work of everybody. So we, I don't sing a solo. There will be solos or different things like that from time to time in the church, but it's not a performance. It's, it's the work of everybody together. So in, in my church, you won't come to a rock concert or a concert of any kind or coming to, to worship together. Um, and so the songs are for everybody to sing. The choir will sing at different points, but they, they're not going to take over the, the worship service. Um, you, you, will, you will confess your sins. You'll have some, a period of, of prayer. Um, there's something called the prayer of the day, which is try to kind of encapsulate the theme of all the readings of the day and, 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 the, and the time of, of, of the year it is. Followed by scripture readings. There'll be usually a scripture from the Old Testament, a psalm, a reading from the New Testament, and a reading from the Gospels. Um, and then I'll preach, uh, you know, hopefully not too long and hopefully not too boring. Um, we'll have another hymn. We'll confess our faith in the creed. Um, and then we'll move to prayers and communion. And once we're done eating, it's time to, to go to coffee hour or go about your day or whatever else it is that you, you'd like to do. But hopefully you would feel, and this is the thing that I, I think is most important, Hopefully you would feel welcomed that when you hear the scriptures, you would feel both convicted and comforted that when you come to the table of communion, you would feel the, the grace and love of God for you at that moment and that you'll be strengthened uh, to go back out into the world uh, to do the work of God that is, that is there for you to do. Those are sort of the things that we hope you feel. And some Sundays when you come, you will feel none of those things. You'll feel grumpy. You'll feel excluded. You'll, you might even feel unwelcome. And that's, that's a detriment you know, to us. And so that would mean that we'd have to practice that. Other Sundays, you'll come out flying like a kite. You'll be so happy and excited that, that God loves you and the world is beautiful and there's nothing that anything can happen and, and, and every, every emotion in between. But um, my hope is that more often you'd, you'd feel welcome, empowered, and, and ready to go when you're done. One of the things that many of our viewers and listeners would want to know is how is the Lutheran tradition organized? For example, do you have, do you have bishops and things of that nature? And and, and and finally, you you spoke to um, the centrality of the Bible, of the creed and tradition within the Lutheran uh, faith. Who is indeed is the the ultimate arbiter of truth within the Lutheran tradition? So how are you? Well, organizing? Jesus. The the last the answer to the question is Jesus, and 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 we don't have a pope. We don't have a, uh, an ultimate. Um, representative of Jesus on earth or anything like that. Um, the way that we're structured is the, 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 the authority uh, is always vested in the church itself. So, um, it, so I'm called by a congregation, the congregation. I'm not the, the primary decision maker here. It's the congregation is the one that makes the decisions and they're represented by a church council or, or board or best we call it a council, but you can think of it as a board. Um, and I have a role on that board, but I'm, I'm not the president of the board. Um, the, there's a lay person who's president of the board. We do have bishops, uh, but they are not like Catholic bishops. They can't just say, you're going to do this and everybody has to do it. Um, they're just like pastors just for a region. Um, and they, 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 they do have power, of course, like everybody who's a leader, but um, it's checked by um, the assembly of the, you know, the, 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 the chief decision-making body is a church and assembly um, where we're all, when we're all together and making decisions and voting. Um, Worldwide, there's something called the Lutheran World Federation, or LWF, and it's just all the Lutheran churches throughout the world get to be a part of that Lutheran World Federation, and it's basically a advisory. Um, it might set priorities for, suggest priorities for churches, um, 
it, uh, but basically it maintains dialogue between Lutheran ch- churches in different countries and, and helps, helps us uh, kind of work together um, and talk to one another. Um, but the church is the people. It's not just the clergy. Um, and quite frankly, normally in my experience, the people in the pews are much, much better Christians often than the, uh, than the people with the fancy robes. Um, I know that in my life I've been enriched, um, and inspired and helped immensely by, by just regular everyday people, um, doing God's work. And so, and so, you know, we all, we're all in this together. We all make, try to make decisions together. Um, clergy obviously have expertise and, and leadership, but we're not, um, there's no one person, uh, making up all the rules. Tell us a little bit about your ministry. Um, What's been the nature of your ministry? What is it that you enjoy, what you find most challenging? Uh, I love worship. Worship is my, my jam. Um, I love leading worship and preaching and, and being together. I love faith formation, of uh, bringing groups together to, to, to pray together and, and listen to scripture together. I like teaching confirmation. Um, I like visiting people, uh, talking with them about their lives, hearing their stories. Um, and so that's, and also, um, I guess the intellectual side of the job, uh, you know, the research, the preparation for sermons, uh, the preparation for, for different sorts of things. So, um, that's sort of where I've kind of focused my ministry. Um, and you know, everybody's got different gifts. Some pastors are really great administrators. I'm not that good of an administrator. Um, some pastors are really great, um, you know, at, uh, organizing people to do stuff. I'm, I'm, I, I put myself in the middle on that one, you know. So, um, so we all have a lot of different gifts. They're all needed. Um, but my ministry, I think that the joy that I get is from, from worship leadership, preaching, and, and, and forming the faith. You have been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.